terms of news and wanting to be informed and to understand and stay abreast of current events, our problem is not that we lack news and lack avenues and opportunities to have access to news. Our problem is we lack news that we can actually trust. Uh, back in 1999, C. John Somerville wrote a book that is at least as important for us to read today as it was back then. It was entitled provocatively, How the News Makes Us Dumb. And Somerville pointed out that the reality is that all of the major news outlets are in fact for profit ventures, which means that bottom line, there is a bottom line. They have shareholders to report to. It's a for-profit business, which therein means in many cases, if not most, they will appeal to left or right, CNN or Fox, will appeal to our baser instincts so as to provoke and keep us listening and reading. It's a tough thing. That said we still have this desire, many of us, still have a desire to stay informed, still have a desire to understand, still have a desire to, to know and to grapple with the events and with what's going on in this big wide world around us. And in many respects, I think we could say that that's a, actually a, a good thing, a, in fact, a God-given impulse, um, as is actually, pushing a little further, our desire not just to know what's going on, but our desire to know Him. Our desire to, to know Him, to, to know His ways. That's something that's deeply ingrained in us because we have been made in His image according to His likeness. We are hardwired to want to know Him and His purposes for our lives. Well, here's the good news. Among many other things, Christmas is about God moving towards us that we might know Him. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn now with me to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Now this is in the Old Testament. It is the fifth book in the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And rightly so, it says in the bulletin that we're honing in on verse 15 of chapter 18. But for context's sake, we have to back up to verse 9 and then read past verse 15 on into verse 22. So we're going to read Deuteronomy 18, starting in verse 9, on through verse 22. Hear now the Word of God. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you Anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations, which are, you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, 
from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this Advent season. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity to take a, a moment to stop and be still and to pause and to consider and uh, marvel in the ways that you prepared the way for the coming of your Son. We, we prepare. We prepare this holiday season. We uh, have all kinds of, of decorations and traditions and such all around us, and it grows in intensity as we get closer and closer to December 25th. Oh goodness, that is a, but a pale reflection, though something of a reflection of the preparations over the course of centuries that you put in play to make way the way of the King, your Son, the Lord Jesus, whom we see here in Deuteronomy 18, is the great prophet. We ask that you'd help us to understand what that means, to grapple with its implications for our lives, to rejoice in the implications here for our lives. There is such beauty and wonder and richness and depth, if you would, oh, please, help us here. Help us see what's in your word and give us ears with which to hear. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, again, as I alluded to a moment ago, because of the fact that we have been made in God's image, if I can put it this way, simply because of creation, we are hardwired, every one of us, to want to know God. There is this deep, profound longing to know and to be known by Him. At the same time, there is the reality of the fall. Um, that longing has gone awry. The, the instruments, such as these, if you will, speaking in metaphor here, the instruments need to be tuned. Uh, the, the compass needs to be recalibrated. The GPS internally within us is, is broken and in need of repair. Theologians for centuries have referred to this as total depravity, or you could say radical depravity, meaning that every part of us is broken and fallen and scarred, sin-infected and impacted, including our minds, our ability to think, and understand is bent in and twisted in upon itself. We are sinful, depraved, through and through radically so. So on the one hand, there is this ongoing search, this ongoing longing to know the one who has made us, 
to connect because there is yet more. The author of Ecclesiastes speaks of the fact that we have been made with eternity in our hearts. And at, at the same time, because of this radical brokenness and sin-scarredness that every one of us bears, we limp through that search blindly, unable to see, unable to perceive what is actually true. You see it in our day, on the one hand, down one road, we will chase after mediums and um, horoscopes, astrology, um, all such as that. And it would seem, it seems like, the opposite, but it's not quite because the two actually have far more in common than we realize. Down the other road is just the reliance upon secular naturalistic, scientific claims. And you say, but those are completely opposite. And I say, no, they're not. Because neither are grounded in the truth. They're completely untethered with their roots right up in the air. Right up in the air. And it's in that sort of setting, the longing but the blind limping that we see Moses speaking here in Deuteronomy 18. That's why we see mention of the, the absolute the, the allusions to abominations, abominable practices, and detestable things, and trying to discern who is God and what does He want of us through divination or necromancy or, God forbid, sacrificing our children in the flames. That's what all that's about. It sounds so foreign, but the impulse is as true today as it was then. A desire to know Him and be known, to know His ways and to be sure about them. In that context, God, not wanting to leave His people in the dark, sent the prophets to speak in His name, on His behalf, foretelling what was to come, foretelling what should be in the here and now. And in our text specifically, Moses speaks of a line of prophets that will come after him. That when he leaves the scene, it's not as though the, the, the prophetic line is over, it's just beginning with him and moving on through the course of the centuries. But Moses clearly has in mind one one prophet to come who will supersede, who will be greater than, who will be on the one hand like Moses, but completely unlike Moses. As a prophet he will come, but greater than any prophet who ever has come. Because in fact he is the, the prophet to whom all the prophets are pointing and preparing the way for. Well, we know his name. We've sung of Him already this morning. Jesus of Nazareth. The Christ. The Messiah. The Great Prophet. Given that that Great Prophet has come, how should we respond to Him? 
Given what we know of how He has revealed Himself to us, how should we respond to Him? We must, I'll just put it this in a very simple way, we must give Him our ears and heed all that He says. We must give Him our ears and heed Him in all that He says. Think with me of the, the nature of His prophetic ministry. What we know of Him, we're going to be looking at this in the next few minutes here. It's there in your outline, these three points. The manner of His prophetic ministry. That's the first thing. The second thing being the message of His prophetic ministry. And then thirdly, the means of His prophetic ministry. When we grapple with those things and the implications of those points, those realities, we cannot help but listen to Him, give Him our ear, and pay heed to Him. Let's look at these in turn. First, the manner of His prophetic ministry. I'll put it this way, the weightiness of what He says. The weightiness, the import of what He says. On the one hand, you can say, it's fair to say this, that in some respects, Jesus was exactly what the people expected. They were accustomed to a wise sage coming and teaching and speaking. Uh, That's something that was, they were accustomed to in their past, accustomed to in their present. Even some of his most notorious enemies and opponents at least gave him a, a monochrome amount of respect and referred to him as rabbi. So he is a teacher. At least at a minimal level, people recognize that from the start. So they, he comes teaching, in that sense is something, well, he come as they, they came as they expected him to come. At the same time, what did he teach? And how did he teach it? And this was completely unexpected. The best of their teachers were but mortal. There would come a moment when they would pass from the scene, every one of them. And the best of them, all that they had was second-hand information, passed on from God to them to then deliver on to the people. Second-hand information, and some of them were even second-rate prophets. Pretty muddled. And that's to say nothing of the false prophets and the heresies that they would spew such that over the course of centuries that the people knew that this one, Moses had promised them that there was a prophet, the prophet to come. When was he coming? When would he come on the scene? And Jesus comes and they recognize, they hear something profoundly different. And they recognized it even when they didn't realize who he was. Go with me to Matthew's Gospel. Matthew, that's the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew uh, chapter 7, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Matthew records for us after chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, how the people, the crowds who have been listening to Jesus teach their that day on the, the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee. They've, they've heard Him. They're marveling. Listen to how Matthew describes this. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching. For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. There was an immediacy to how Jesus taught. He spoke, and the people recognized this, he spoke as one who had been to heaven. Deeply familiar with it. 
spoke as one who didn't just know about God, but knew God. Could he be? Could he be the prophet? Could he be finally the one after all these years that we have been waiting for? Could he be finally? He's come. The manner, the manner of Jesus' prophetic ministry alone shows us that the longings have finally, the expectations have finally been met. Some of you may have seen this film. It was a great holiday movie some, I don't know, about a decade or so ago. Night in the Museum, right? And a gr great film. would recommend it to you. Uh, it's loosely, here's a description, plot description. So you have this night watchman uh, whose job is to, to do night watches in this museum where the exhibits come alive, of course, in the middle of the night. And a little subplot is going on. There is another tour guide, and she is doing a research paper on Sacagawea. And she's hit a writer's block. She just can't seem to make her way through the assignment. And because of the magic of the museum, she actually has the opportunity to meet the subject of her paper in miniature size. And so this is a fantastic opportunity. She can meet and discuss and banter on with Sakagawi. I mean, this is the Shoshone woman, miniaturized. The Shoshone woman who accompanies Lewis and Clark on the core of discovery. She doesn't have to guess anymore. She doesn't have to rely on a speculation and fanciful papers and all that. She can go to the source. Right to the source. She can go. My friends, that's exactly what we have with Jesus as the great prophet, the source. You see, when he speaks of relationships and ethics and money and sex and power and origins and destinies, and life, and death, and temporal life, and eternal life, he knows of what he speaks. And we don't have to, tr we don't have to guess anymore. We can trust him. In fact, we have to trust him. Oh, it's good. It's good to compare and and opinions and ideas around the proverbial or literal water cooler. It's good to know what our contemporaries think and be aware of what polls are saying, the folks around us really believe, and the, you know, the sort of the culture and the air in which we breathe. That's good to know. But if you want to know, like really know, truth, we have to go to this prophet. We have to go to the source. We have to go to Jesus. Jesus is this great prophet, this greater Moses. We simply must give him our ears and heed. That's the first thing. The second thing is the nature of his message. It's not just the nature of his manner, how he communicates, the weightiness of what it is that he says, but the, the very message, what it is that he says, what it is that he conveys. That's worth noting here that the theme, the theme of his message, the theme of Jesus' message, what his, his proclamation, is not just the ways of God, but God himself. 
His message is God Himself. I want you to think with me. I was going to say an astonishing moment, but it might be better to say a series of astonishing moments over the course of decades in his earthly life. Jesus is a young lad, goes with his family, time, week after week after week after week to synagogue. And there in synagogue, as a young little lad, he is hearing the Scriptures, the Word of God read and taught on again and again and again as he grows up. Finally, one day at the beginning of his public ministry, he stands up and he reads from those scriptures. Now think with me the wonder of this. I read paradoxes a little while ago. Here's Jesus listening to other people read this and tell him what it means. And finally the day comes where he stands up and reads it. Well, what, what's the message of what was being read. Well, unless we think we have to guess, no, we don't have to, to guess. We can go to Luke 24. So this is the third of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke 24, it's the last chapter in Luke's Gospel. Uh, so I know it's Christmas, but we're talking now Easter, that first Easter Sunday. Jesus is walking with a couple of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. There's this dialogue going on. And I'm just kind of picking up there towards the end. This is uh, Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 25. And he, this is Jesus, he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses and all the prophets are all about what? Him. He is the subject. He's the theme of all of it. All the predictions, all the prophecies, all the ceremonies. Think, of the, think with me. How stunning, astounding a statement this is. All the predictions, all the prophecies, all of the ceremonies, all of the sacrifices for centuries, all of the key events, all of the key people, the, the, the themes, the patterns that you see unfolding over the course of ages in Old Testament revelation, unfolding and even escalating as time goes by, it all converges coalesces and is met and fulfilled in one individual, this prophet, because it's all pointed and fulfilled in him. All of it. He's the hinge on which it all turns. He's the center. He's the focal point of the plot. You take him out, you've got no plot. You've got nothing but subplots at best. Jesus, this prophet, is the focal point of it all. But as astonishing as that is, the reality that he is the subject and the theme of all of it, it's not just that. We can push this further. 
He's not just the theme and the subject. He's the author and the source. He is where it comes from. He is who it's about. He is where it comes from. Go with me just one page over. You were in Luke 24? One page over. It takes you into John 1. John 1. Jesus is God. John 1. This prologue. Fantastic, wonderful, amazing, astonishing, beautiful prologue of the Apostle John here. Verse 18. I'll just read that. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Okay, just stop. Full stop. Okay, you've got to get that established, the punctuation, how he's moving through this sentence, okay? No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Did you catch that? Let me read it again. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus is God. Jesus is the God of the prophets, if I can be more specific. And as the God of the prophets, He is also behind all the prophecies. All of them. He's, behind, he's the source, the author of all. First Peter. Keep going to the right in your New Testament. We've got a couple of verses I'm going to make you look at, look up here. First uh, Peter, this is after the book of Hebrews, uh, after the book of James. You have Hebrews and James. You have First and Second Peter. You hit First, Second John and Jude and Revelation. But we're not going that far. First Peter, chapter one, verses ten and eleven. Think with me. What is Peter saying? And what is the import of what he is saying here? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It is Christ the author. Christ the source in those centuries in the Old Testament era who is pointing to himself. And if that's, though that's not clear, we see it in Revelation. So keep moving to the right. We're going about as far to the right as you can go. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. Revelation chapter 19, verse 10. You see something similar here. Uh, this is an angel now speaking to the Apostle John. Uh, John, speak, when it says I, he's speaking of himself. Then I fell down at his angel. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Jesus testifies, prophecy comes. Jesus is the source. Jesus is the author. Oh my goodness. Does Jesus know the message? Of course he does. He is the theme of the message and the source of the message at the same time. What do we do with this? How do we grapple with this? Where do we go with this? I just want you to think with me just for a moment. It matters a whole lot what you believe. Stay with me. 
it matters a whole lot what you believe and how you act on it. So mistletoe, right? No few of us have it hung around, perhaps in strategic places. But some of you may, may not know that mistletoe is actually a parasitic, poisonous plant. You eat those berries or chew on those leaves, you will find yourself suffering some, from some digestive distress, to say the least. All right? So hang it up all you want to. Please don't eat it. All right. That's your public service warning for the, the morning. Now let's say for a moment, you take that little warning that I just gave you, and you say, I'm putting it in my salad. I'm having me some mistletoe today. You decide, simply because of the strength of your belief, that you can take on mistletoe. Go ahead. Let me know how that goes. Where am I going with this? I would just stay with me. Please stay with me. I'm trying to say this right because I don't want to unnecessarily offend. We hear Jesus say in the Scriptures very clearly, I am the only way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But we, often in our modern sensibilities, say that's nice, that's interesting, but that sounds exclusive. That sounds offensive. Perhaps it would be better, given how many other opinions there are out there about ways and truth and life, maybe it would be better if we were just to take all these views and boil them down to their lowest common denominator and live there. Wouldn't that be better? Now, that posture, the attempt to hold to that posture, is an attempt at humility. I want you to think about something. That's not humility. It's actually just the opposite. Please hear me. Please, I beg you to think with me. That feigned, bent knee of humility is actually a stubborn, stiff-necked arrogance. I beg you to think of Think in those terms with me. Because God has spoken and we're turning as though He hasn't. God has spoken in Christ and we're saying not so much. That is not humility. That is foolishness. That is not teachability. That is arrogance. And it matters what you believe. It matters profoundly what you believe.
Ours is not to turn away and to second guess what he has said to us and made so clear. Ours is to listen. Jesus is in fact this great prophet. Ours is to listen. To give him our ears. And to give him heed. That's the second thing. The astonishing nature of his message. The manner in which he speaks. The message that he speaks. One last thing. The means. Now what I mean by that is this. How can we hear? How, how would it be possible for people like us to actually hear him speak? How, how will that message get through? All the static, right? All the static, all the stubbornness, all the hard-heartedness that I, that I bear and so do you. How can it get through? He speaks to us through His Word. Two things, through His Word and by His Spirit. Let's unpack that if I can. So through His Word, um, a couple of places in the New Testament I want to look. John, uh, so we saw Matthew and we looked at a text in Luke. I want to go to John, but halfway through the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, John 14, it really is astonishing um, how this prophet ensures that we have his word to hear. We have access to him speaking. And it's very easy to miss this as you're just flying through John's gospel, but it's quite profound what Jesus says to his apostles here. In John chapter 14, the Apostle John records these words for us in verse 25 and 26. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now please understand the, the historical specificity of that promise. Jesus is speaking to the disciples and and, and this is how we have a New Testament. This is the guarantee of its authority and reliability. Jesus, through His Spirit, moves in the hearts and the minds of the apostolic writers in such a way that when they write, the product of that writing is no more or no less than what the Spirit of Christ impelled them, inspired them to write. It's an astonishing promise that Jesus is making. It's somewhat akin to the promise that Moses gives to the people, that line to come, I'm not leaving you in the dark. And centuries later we see something of a reverberation of that. Jesus promising his, his disciples, I'm not leaving you in the dark. I'm giving you an inscripturated word. Inscribed. Scripture. Inscripturated. <laughs> Jesus worked and they wrote. 
And the, the fruit of that is, is tremendous. Paul goes on. Some of you may be familiar with this passage. If you're not, that's fine. 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, this is after a bunch, in the middle of a bunch of T's, I should say, in the New Testament. You have 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, uh, Titus, uh, then Philemon and Hebrews. But, but 1 and 2 Timothy is the last letter that we have of the Apostle Paul. And in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, this is how the Apostle Paul describes what it is now as a consequence of this work of the Spirit in the writers of the Scriptures, this is now what we have. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. This is the miracle of inspiration. God breathes it out. And we now have the, 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 the output of that, if you will, the ability to read and hear what He has breathed out. This is astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. This is a work of the prophet. The great prophet. And as though that wasn't enough, there's yet more, because our need is more. Because not only do we need the provision of this inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word, we need it to connect. We need it to make way into our hard, stubborn hearts. Has he provided for that? Would he go that far? Is this prophet that great? Yes. Ezekiel, last text. You thought we were in Deuteronomy. Ezekiel, chapter 36. So if you're trying to find that, uh, Psalms, you hit that, and then Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. I'm turning there now, trying to find it myself. Um, Ezekiel, chapter 36. Just two verses. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. Listen to this. This promise, not just of provision, the provision of the Word, but transformation by the Word. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 26. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, Jesus gives us not just enlightenment but enablement. Enablement to live out what it is that he has commanded and to go forth and to spread that word as he has commanded. You see, he really does. He really does give sight to the blind and strength to the lame. He really, really does in every way imaginable, not just physically, but even beyond that. So that's the means. That's how he breaks through. My friends, this is the gift of gifts. Extraordinary gift that we have here. It's a little wonder that we refer to the Bible as Holy Scripture. Scripture in that it is inscribed, it is written down, it is a book. Holy, in that it is other. 
It is separate. It is distinct. It is above and beyond all others. And therein is a treasure that ought to be read and poured over, meditated, marinated, memorized. What are you doing with it this Advent season? Can I just be that practical? What are you doing with this this Advent season? Can I just suggest you give a child a gift and sit with them and read this to them? Can I suggest that you give yourself a gift and slow down and read it yourself? If, in fact, it is what it is, it would seem to be madness not to. It would be madness not to listen to this prophet. It would be insanity. Look, I know, thinking back to a year ago, the, the thing that we couldn't, we were all talking about, and it's kind of like, you know, the reverberation is just dying down, so I hate to bring it up again, but the election cycle of, of 2016, and, and the, 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 the spirit that swept through the land, that's a little lowercase s, by the way, swept through the land that grabbed hold of us. It was something along the lines of, look, I... I've had it with career politicians. I know you've got your experience. I know you've got your track record. Blah, 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 blah. Look where that got us. And so then I want the other guy. I want the other gal, whoever it was. And, and so that's the direction that, that we went and seem to still be going. But that is actually a really unusual impulse for this culture. Really unusual. Because typically we are a culture that relies on the expert especially when it's something that that has anything to do with something that we deem to be close at hand, close to to, to bear in our our home and kin. We rely on the expert. I mean, think with me. You know, your car, the transmission is slipping. You don't take it to Uncle Bob. No, uh, Bob's okay. But take it to your mechanic. That's where we go. You know, your, your computer is crashing. You call the technician. You've got... Tax troubles, you call your accountant. Your body is, is, is in pain or suffering or whatever we call the physician. It's just instinctive. It's what we do. Some of us even get references and referrals and do research on their experts before we go to them. It's just what we do. We know we're crazy if we just throw ourselves into the arms of amateurs and charlatans because we rely on the experts. Stay with me. Jesus is above and beyond any expert. He is not just insightful, he is all-knowing. He is not just the source of good counsel, he is the source of truth. He is truth. He is truth. And he wonder of wonders, he walked among us. He walked among us. He, he, and it wasn't that he just stood off, stood away, This is the most amazing, this is the cosmic house call. He came to us and comes to us. He's the great prophet. Oh, that we would give him our ear and heed him. Let's pray together. Lord, these 